Welcome to Saga Thing, where we're putting the sagas of the Icelanders on trial. I'm John. And I'm Andy. And in this... Is this an episode? What are we calling this? Episode 5B? What is this? <laughs> no, no, this is episode 6. All right. So 6. Episode 5 ended up being longer than we expected, so we broke it into two parts. I remember that. Right. And we realized that we actually needed to record a separate introduction for the second half. Yeah, we realized that very late. <laughs> yes. Uh, okay. So, all clear? Okay. So, we're, we're, we are introducing something we already recorded, but we agreed to record yes. this after we recorded the other stuff. Right. And we should gotcha. probably say that there might be one or two references in this episode that talk about things that happened last time as if they were all part of the same episode. Because initially they were. Yes. Okay. So the main thing right now is that we have to explain what happened in the first half of this episode. Yes. Which was last episode. You're trying to make this difficult, aren't you? No, I'm just enjoying watching the vein on your forehead get bulgy. <laughs> All right. The upshot is that the last episode ended up being mostly about the career of Ail's older brother, Thorolf, or as we're calling him now, Thorolf 2.0. Right. And that seemed like a masterful segue into a bit of review. I am a master of the segue, I'll have mm-hmm. you know. I'm a regular Paul Blart. <laughs> uh, I feel dirty. Wow. That's a, I understand why. Yeah, I have nothing to add to that. Last time on Ailes Saga. We followed the early career of Ailes' older brother Thorolf, whose twinkling eye and ready smile proved to be his passport among the great and the good. Thorolf and his chum, Bjorn Brynjolfsson, make the scene in Norway, where Bjorn's father-in-law, Thorer the Hesser, introduces them to his foster son, Prince Eric Bloodaxe, son of well-known gadabout and occasional Skallagrim family nemesis, Harold Fairhair. Like his ill-fated uncle and namesake, Thorolf 2.0 proves a dab hand at befriending royalty. Eric, Thorolf, and Bjorn become quite the trio of our town, though Eric's aging father, Harold, remains skeptical of Thorolf's name and family. Thorolf settles in as standard bearer for the prince, and they set out on a journey that ends with Eric marrying the estimable Gunild, his future queen. Eric sends the gift of a fancy axe to Skullagrim in a peace offering to his family's old foe, but Skullagrim's not about to make nice with the son of his brother's killer and he smashes the axe as a lesson to his own son. But Thorolf 2.0 is a more politic sort than dear old dad, and to hide his father's continuing animosity toward the Norwegian kings, he makes like Rose Dawson and tosses the broken token in the ocean. Mmm, nice assonance. Thank you, I've been working out. Along on this second trip are Thorolf's foster sister, Asgerd, and his brother, Eil Scott the Grimson himself, who sabotages big brother Thorolf's ship until Thorolf agrees to bring him out of Iceland. Their first stop will be at the King's Court in Norway, where Eric Bloodaxe now rules the roost, after the death of the original rooster, Harold Fairhair. But is Ale ready for the Norwegian court? And is the Norwegian court ready for Ale? <laughs> See, nice and tidy. We should do uh-huh. shorter episodes more often. Well, I think that was the plan when we started Ale Saga. That's Instead, true, we've just been doing longer episodes more often. Well, I guess it's actually working out pretty well that we went on too long because this means we'll get these episodes right up before we leave for the ICMS, the International Congress on Medieval Studies in sunny Kalamazoo, Michigan. Yeah, I know we've mentioned on the podcast in past years, but Andy and I both attend the conference every May. 
Mm-hmm. It comes right at the end of the academic year, which can be a little frantic, but it's a great yeah. way to get recharged. Uh, so, yeah, this episode should go up, what, right before we head off to Kalamazoo, right? Uh, I think so. Yeah, right around that. Uh, mm-hmm. And we're both excited to see our friends and colleagues again, uh, maybe learn a few things. Mm-hmm. And hey, we'll even see each other again. That's always an experience. Uh, hopefully we'll have a chance to meet a few of you there as well. If you're going to be at the conference, look for us and say hi. Uh, mm-hmm. I'll be the one buying too many books and trying to figure out how to get them home. Yeah, so let us know if you're going to be there. Get in touch with us, uh, obviously, on social media. That's a nice way to let us know where you're at and uh, mm-hmm. maybe we can meet up. But right. uh, before the conference can happen, we both have semesters to finish and writing to do. So uh, to pull back the curtain a bit, it's what, uh, 1130 in your time zone, John? Uh, about that, yeah. And it's 10.30 in mine. So we mm-hmm. both have work in the morning, and uh, we're going to do this on the fly. So you ready? Yeah, it's not really on the fly if we keep talking about it, though. Uh, what do you say you hit the button and tell the good folks what they're in for this time? In this episode, Thorolf Scott the Grimson returns to Norway to further cement his bond with the new king, Eric Bloodaxe. This time, he's got his kid brother, Ale and their foster sister Asgard along for the ride. While Eil is making friends with Thorir the Herser's son, Arendjorn, Thorolf makes a bold move to claim the hand of Asgard. As the daughter of Bjorn Brynjolfsson, now an independent landholder with considerable wealth and reputation, and the niece of Thorir the Herser, foster father of the king, Asgard is quite the prize for a man seeking to rise through the ranks of the Norwegian upper crust. But when Eil hears of his brother's intention to marry their foster sister, he's none too happy. Feigning sickness, he skips the wedding and ends up on a rent-collecting mission with a man called Olvir, one of Thor the Herser's farm managers. And when they arrive at Atloy Island, they quickly find fault with the hospitality of their host, Atloy Bard, who is open-handed with curds and whey, but stingy with ale and meat. It turns out that King Eric and his Queen Gunild are also visiting Bard's farm and all the best food and drink have been reserved for them. And when the two parties join, Eil finally gets to meet the King and Queen of Norway himself. What does Thorolf say when King Eric asks him how his father liked that fancy axe called King's Gift? What kind of impression does young Eil make on Eric and Gunhild when he gets to the party? How will he respond to Bard's lies about the availability of ale and meat? And where does one hide on Atloy Island after killing the party's host in the presence of the king and queen? Find out as Saga Thing takes on Ale Saga, chapters 41 to 45. This should be a fun one. Ale's up to some hijinks in Norway while his brother's away getting married. <laughs> well, hijinks at a body count. Now, for Ale, is there any other kind of hijink? Don't they always involve a body count? No, that's right. That's fair. Without bloodshed, it would be a medium jink at best. That's right. Uh, Or even a low jink. All right. uh, Anything else before we get underway? Uh, A couple of short things. Uh, First of all, thanks for bearing with us. Uh, These two episodes are a bit shorter than a typical Saga Thing episode has been lately. But as we explained, Mm, uh, things just went on a bit too long. (laughs) Uh, Like Mark Twain's apology for writing a long letter, we're sorry we didn't have time to make it shorter. That's not actually Mark Twain, you know. Pretty sure that one predates him. I, okay, I, I didn't say he invented the excuse, but he just used it. Ah, oh, you're just getting grumpy now, aren't you? No, I'm trying to explain why we've ended with our last episode being almost entirely about Thorolf Scott Grimson making friends with Eric Bloodaxe. That's a good thing to talk about, though. Uh, and, of course, now this episode is mostly about Ale getting drunk. 
Drunk and violent, though. Fair point. Mm -hmm. Uh, Still, the pacing of these two episodes is a bit wonky, so I thank you for bearing with us. Uh, We'll be back to our normal, more polished level of bluster and nonsense (laughs) very soon. Yeah, polished in quotes. Now, I think that's all we need to say at this point. Let's let's light this wedding cake. That's that that's birthday cakes. Let's dive in. Is that better? It's also not a thing to do to wedding cakes, but okay. Let's go. Part 18. Wedding bells are ringing in the chapel. <laughs> That was way better than I thought it was going to be. Well done. <laughs> so we've got a wedding. How exciting. Yeah, it depends on who you ask, uh, but we'll get there. Uh, first, a bit of housekeeping. Uh, there's been a, a bit of shifting of farms in Norway after uh, Brynjolf was the father of Bjorn, if you don't That's, remember. Uh, Asgard's father, right? Right, exactly. Yeah, Brynjolf, uh, Asgard's grandfather, has died. And his sons, Bjorn and Thord, split the inheritance. Thord took the farm, uh, which means that Bjorn moves to a new farm. But don't worry, we're reassured that it's good and valuable farmland. Yes, and we're also told that Bjorn had refused to swear allegiance to King Eric, so he's now known as Bjorn the landowner, which Uh implies that he owns his land outright and is under no obligation to the king. Good for him. So I guess Eric is a little bit softer than his father on that A little bit. Uh, He's an interesting dude. Um... The uh, a side note here. So I was talking over with a student of mine. Um, you remember Thorstein Staffstruck, our very first uh, saga, oh, yes. saga short? Yes. Uh, there's a reference in there that we uh, we didn't talk about at the time, but it's a reference to um, people who own land in a district uh, declaring loyalty by putting their hands between the knees of the local lord. Between the uh, knees? Yes. In, okay. the, in a very kind of feudal, you know, French, English, Norman kind of way. Uh-huh. Uh, and it strikes me as being very, as being relevant to this, that uh, there's a real sense that in Norway, um, and certainly, you know, in the 13th, 14th century, Icelanders would be aware of this, uh, that uh, there's a kind of this feudal idea that the land is held at the pleasure of the local lord or the king. Right. Uh, and so the idea that you would be pledging fealty to a lord, to a uh, a Gothi, in exchange for the use of your land, uh, is very much something that I think we see sort of playing out in a lot of these sagas. Even though at the time it would it would be anachronistic, mm-hmm. uh, at the time the sagas are written, it's very much kind of a current event issue. And so Bjorn, the landowner, being a kind of independent figure. I think that would mean a lot more to a 13th century audience than it might mean to people in the 10th century. Hmm. Or that it might mean to an audience of, say, us. Quite right, yeah. Although to, maybe to a uh, uh, Viking Age Norwegian, uh, which Bjorn the landowner right. is, uh, it means a lot to him, right? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and as his own man, uh, Bjorn makes quite a name for himself. Yes, he does. He soon becomes a, a figure of significant wealth and power. Very convenient that he rises up so quickly like that. Isn't it, though? Yeah. But Thorolf uh, drops Asgard off at her father, Bjorn's house, and then mm-hmm. keeps on sailing to check in with King Eric as soon as right. he can. Right. He's, he's not, like, staying long, but there's a uh, there's an exchange between them that's worth mentioning, I think. Yeah, yeah. So remember how Scott Grimm told Thorolf to return that old axe all busted and sooty with an insulting <laughs> poem? The well, one he drops axe- in the ocean, you mean. 
Yes, that axe is at the bottom of the sea now, and Eric is going to expect something back from Scott the Grim in mm-hmm. the formal exchange of friendship he prompted with King's Gift. Yeah, I'm glad you uh, used the word exchange. Yeah. I don't know how often we've talked about it before, but we should have talked about gift exchange uh, in medieval Scandinavian cultures at some point. Well, there's no time like the present. Who doesn't love a digression? (laughs) All righty. It's not getting late at all. Uh, (laughs) So gift giving is a highly ritualized practice, right? This is a gift culture. Right. Uh, Anyone who studied classical literature or uh, small scale societies in general will already be familiar with this. Gift giving is a kind of a dance, right? A ritualized performance around mm-hmm. which social relationships and individual statuses are built. Yes. So uh, the giver of a fine gift is in a privileged position, usually. Yeah. Um, he is showing publicly that he has the means to offer the gift, and so he gains power and prestige from this offering. Right. And this also obliges the receiver to accept the gift graciously and to reciprocate appropriately. Refusing to accept the gift would be an insult to the giver. Delaying too long in reciprocation would also be an insult to the giver. Mm-hmm. And the receiver would have to be careful about what gift to offer back, how to present it properly. There's a lot of factors to consider. Yeah, a lot of social complexity wrapped up in these yeah. exchanges, which yeah. makes them fraught with the potential for hurt feelings, the development of animosity, and then perhaps even violence down the road. Mm-hmm. Yep. But when handled properly, they, they can enhance the reputations of both the giver and receiver, as well as cement bonds of friendship. Right. And I've actually always had this theory that um, in a lot of sort of medieval contexts, um, the the withholding of power is a kind – serves as a kind of gift culture behavior as well. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, so something like sanctuary, right? the practice of sanctuary is a demonstration of a secular lord showing that he has sufficient control over himself and his men that he can afford to give the gift of non-interference, right? magnanimity. Right, right. Uh, that it, it sort of works on that same kind of level of operation. Absolutely. Uh, so what we're saying here then is that the king's gift of this valuable axe um, and then uh, having Scott Legrim smash it up to pieces and let it rust and soak up soot, we're saying this isn't the proper procedure for receiving a gift. Well, I mean, it's the proper procedure if you want to make it very clear to everyone involved that you want nothing to do with the gift giver and that you think him a right. dangerous fraud. I mean, Fair enough. That's pretty much what Scott Legrim's response says. Right. And that, of course, is why Thorolf tossed the thing overboard before anybody could see it. Yeah. And that leads to this potentially awkward moment between Eric and Thorolf. They both know that the future of their relationship hinges on Scott Legrim's proper response to the gift exchange. Eric likes Thorolf, but he surely remembers his father's warning about the sons of Keldolf, and this is in many ways a test. Right. And now this is how we get this uh, this quick little scene in chapter 41. I'll read it just directly from the saga because it's quite short. Thorolf went to see King Eric. When they met, Thorolf delivered a greeting to him from Skotlagrim, saying mm-hmm. that he had been grateful for the gift the king had sent him. Hey, now, wait a minute. I don't remember that part, John. Well, I mean, it didn't happen. Uh, <laughs> Thorolf is uh, prevaricating. Okay. Uh, uh, stretching. Mm-hmm. Lying is, I believe, the Anglo-Saxon term. I think so. Uh, he presented King Eric with a longship sail that he told him Scotlagrim had sent. Yeah, see, that definitely didn't happen. <laughs> I distinctly remember Scotlagrim saying something about how Eric's gift sucked and where he could shove it. 
Yeah, that wasn't the exact uh, message of the poem, but I think that was essentially the the underlying theme. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, I, I don't think uh, Thorolf was entirely comfortable with the message that Scott LeCrim sent. So he just sort of, uh, you know, he invented his own. Uh-huh. A lot of time on those ships to think. And he, uh, he managed to come up with his own message. Yeah. Uh, I can't help but notice that his gift is also something you could find in the hold of a ship. Yes, exactly. <laughs> like, oh, hey, he sent you the sail. <laughs> it, it looks used. Uh, yeah, uh, but it works. I mean, King Eric is pleased with the exchange and invites Thorolf to stay the winter. That's right. But Thorolf has ale on the ship and he surely doesn't uh, want to bring ale into the king's presence just yet. Yeah, definitely not. Remember that ale uh, physically as well as behaviorally uh, resembles his father. Mm-hmm. Uh, plus, uh, there's other plans. Oh, really? Do tell. What is Thorolf up to? Uh, well, he travels to Thor the Herser's farm and asks if he can stay there for the winter. Thor mm. quickly agrees, even accepts Ale into his household after Thorolf explains that he needs to keep an eye on him. Yeah, well, I, I believe Thoria responds, We regard it as an asset to have your brother, if he's anything like you. <laughs> that's that's the kind of saga humor I really enjoy. I know, there's, right? There's no response there. Uh, we as readers understand how funny that line is. Uh, but in the saga, there's absolutely no response at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next line... Just explains that Thorolf went back to the ship and had it pulled ashore. Yeah, see, even that part is funny to me because I understand the rules of hospitality suggest you might want to ask before parking your ship and unloading. Yeah, but yeah. I just like the idea that Thorolf is keeping Ale safely on board, just offshore, mm-hmm. in the case that he starts some trouble before the host can be tricked into accepting him into the house. Right. Wait, you're saying that Ale might not be exactly like Thorolf? <laughs> yeah. You're making him sound like a bit of a vampire. Yeah, he can't come in until he's invited. Well, I mean, he's he's not the kind of guest you'd want to have around if you knew what he was capable of. And vampires <laughs> are the same way. Well, now, at this point, uh, we're introduced to Thor's son, Arinbjorn. Uh, he's an assertive figure. And uh, Eil Dracul uh, takes an immediate <laughs> liking to him. Yes, he does. Uh, once he's invited into the home. Soon he's following Arnbjorn around everywhere, presumably flapping and pretending to be a bat. All right, enough uh, of the vampire stuff. <laughs> <laughs> that was a throwaway. Uh, sorry. Uh, uh, so these two men develop a strong bond uh, mm-hmm. based around Arnbjorn as the uh, the kind of dominant, uh, more outgoing figure and Ale as his kind of sidekick. Yeah, the masculine role model he's been looking for. Right. And so uh, Aaron Bjorn's going to be a significant figure going forward in the saga. That's right. Although not for the rest of this episode. Well, um, fair. But his relationship with Thorolf, uh, that is, uh, but Ale's relationship with Thorolf is not so great, however. And it only gets worse when Thorolf approaches Thorir to ask what he'd think if he were to ask for Asgard's hand in marriage. Okay. Now, this is going to get a little bit complicated family wise. Mm-hmm. Asgard is Thorir's niece. Uh, but Thor is the man with the most power in his family, which is why Thorolf is starting with him. It's also worth noting that Asgard is Thorolf's foster sister and is significantly younger than him. Right. But Thorolf wasn't home for most of the time that Asgard was being raised by Bera and Scott the Grim. And which just As- underlines the difference in their ages, by the way. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah <laughs> that Asgard that- is still having her nappies changed by, uh, by Bera while Thorolf is already out making a living. That's correct. We assume just from basic calculation that uh, that Thorolf had to be like 
between 13 and 16 when yeah. he left yeah. and Osgard was a was a baby. Right. Significantly older than both Osgard and Egil. That's right. Now, it's not unusual for a a a, a proposed husband to be mm-hmm. 15 to 20 to 30 to 40 years older than uh, his his bride to be. Correct. Um, but uh, it's also worth noting here that uh, that Asgard would have grown up alongside Ale, not Thorolf. So the age is more Correct. similar between Ale and uh, Asgard than it is with uh, right. Thorolf. Right. And that's also not an uncommon thing, right? We talk about difference in ages, but it's usually, you know, a, a bridgeable age gap. Yeah. Um, so Thor agrees to support the proposal. And so Thorolf travels to Bjorn's house to ask his opinion. You have to remember that uh, Bjorn is Thor's brother-in-law, but the relationship is a little bit fraught because of the abduction of Thora. Well, not anymore. Thora. Right. No, that's I'm saying in the past, it's been quite yeah. uh, quite fraught. Uh, now, Bjorn is uh, back in Thor's good graces. He's also one of Thorolf's best friends, and he already owes a lot to Thorolf for helping him out with that little scrape when he and Thora were hiding out at Skotlagrim's and trying to avoid Thor. That's when that uh, teenage Thorolf convinced Scotlagrim to use his influence to resolve things between Bjorn and Thor. So, of course, at this point, Bjorn really doesn't have any other alternative, and he approves of the marriage. Mm-hmm. And so a wedding date is quickly set for Thorolf to marry Asgard, See, his foster sister. Things are really turning out well for Thorolf. Uh-huh. He's managed to escape Scotlagrim's unhappy home. Now he's about to marry into one of Norway's most powerful families. And oh, good point. To yeah. add to that, he's good buddies with the king, and there's no tension anywhere to be seen. This is going really well. Sorry, did you say no tension? Yeah, no tension. Well, there's a bit of tension. Uh, when Thorolf is preparing to leave for the wedding, he asks everyone to come with him. Thorir and Arnbjorn and everyone of any importance agrees to go. But on the day that Thorolf is supposed to leave home, just as everyone arrives in their traveling clothes, Eil comes out and says he's not feeling well. Oh, we got to put the uh, the Ferris Bueller fake cough in there. <laughs> Uh-oh. Is it serious? Uh, I don't know. I hope not. I think I may need a kidney transplant. He's too sick to travel, you see. Oh, the uh, the party will have to go on without him. That's so sad. He's going to miss his brother and foster sister's marriage. Hey, uh, hang on a second just before we go into the next section. All right, sure. Yeah, I wasn't done either, to be fair, but go ahead. Age before beauty, John. Oh, I, thank you. I don't need to go twice, but that was kind. Uh, uh-huh. So we've been talking a bit about the patterns that develop in the saga. Sure, yeah. If you follow the argument that the patterns are deliberate rather than just iterations on the saga formula, then then we have to say that this is one of the more carefully constructed of all the sagas, and it deserves a lot of credit for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are a lot of angles to that reading as well. Well, so during Thorolf's early career, we talked about his status as Thorolf 2.0, right? His, his life story keeps running on a parallel course with that of his uncle Thorolf. Sure, especially on the on the surface level. Mm-hmm. And uh, these side stories about his friendship with Eric Bloodaxe are all a part of that. Eric, the son of Harold, stands in for his father, just as Thorolf 2.0 stands in for Thorolf 1. Right. But we've got a different story going on now, because Thorolf 2.0 is getting married. Yeah, Uncle Thorolf got married, John, to, uh, uh, who was it? Uh, Sig- Sigrid, right? Yes. Sigrid from Sandness. Right, good. Uh, poor, poor Sigrid. Right, that's good. Uh, uh I don't know if I would have gotten the name that quick. Uh, well, that, I've been I've been working on the genealogy, so mm-hmm. that one's familiar because she has so many husbands. Right, good point. Uh, 
But that story doesn't have a lot in common with this one. Uh, Uncle Thorolf married his buddy Bard's widow and then, through her, inherited Sandness. Uh, Their relationship was very different from the borderline incestuous wedding Thorolf 2.0 is about to get involved in. It's not technically incestuous. Asgard isn't his biological sister. So you know, you know what? I'm going to stop you there because I feel like we're going to regret the thin ice you're Eddie got onto here. What? Like that makes it okay. <laughs> They're not I, biological I, sister. Um, he's never even around. I know. I know. No, my, my point is about parallels in this story, and the okay. the Thorolf's marriages don't line up at all. Uh, but there is another marriage just like this one. Mm. I think uh, before we jump into the, the the one that is, I would say that the the thing that's alike in their marriages is how the woman brings a certain uh, amount of property mm-hmm. into the family, and sure. that is something that is going to be a point of contention uh, a little bit later. So, so what what is it that you wanted to to, to say about this, uh, Andy Thorolf and Bjorn are good friends who share risk and reward in raiding and trading. They are, in short, seafaring business partners. Yes, yes. Uh Uh-huh. Yes, I definitely see where you're going here. And now Thorolf is proposing marriage to his partner's daughter, cementing Mm. their friendship and linking their families through an auspicious marriage. Very clever. Thorolf's wedding isn't an echo of his uncle Thorolf's. It's almost an exact parallel to his grandfather Kveldolf's marriage to Salbjörg, the daughter of Kari from Burl. Mm, Very nice. You've gone back to the very first chapter and teased all of that out. Yeah. So for anyone who doesn't remember these details from an episode we posted three months ago, (laughs) Kveldolf and Kari were partners in a raiding ship. And again, this is like first paragraph of Mm -hmm. the saga. Uh, When they gave up the Vikings life, Kveldolf proposed to Kari's daughter. And yeah, it's very close to the same situation. So the patterns continue. They do indeed. Uh, but you wanted to circle back to the marriage arrangement. I, mm-hmm. I concede the point, first of all. I was just joking around. This isn't actually a close relative, and foster siblings becoming a married couple isn't unheard of, uh, which isn't totally shocking, right? It's it's certainly one way to put two young people into regular contact with each other. Yeah, and you have to wonder how often it was used for exactly that purpose. The things or assemblies would have been one place where marriages were negotiated. And we've seen in several sagas now how matchmaking could be tied up in all sorts of other legal and social transactions that might take place there. But mm-hmm. yep. there's an obvious logic to placing two young people of a similar age together if you're hoping to ally one house with another. Hmm. Yeah, we've actually seen this play out before. Um, yes. I'm thinking of uh, Gunlog's Serpentongue saga. I was thinking the same thing uh-huh. as we were talking. Yeah. Uh, Gunlog spent a year in a kind of fosterage studying law with Thorstein Eilson. Mm-hmm. And during that year, Gunlog gets to know Thorstein's daughter, Helga the Fair, who turns out to be the tragic love of Gunlog's life. Yes. And to be clear, that's my thingman, Thorstein Eilson. Yes. Who also happens to be the son of our man, Ail Scott the Grimson. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. There's a good link there. Uh, mm-hmm. So here's the question. Did Bjorn leave Asgard to be fostered with Bera in the hope of exactly this outcome? Mm. Were Thorolf and Asgard essentially an arranged marriage? Hmm. I, you know, I'm not sure because Thorolf was younger at the time, but it does make a lot of sense. To I mean, she was of- an infant. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, but, you know, Thorolf had kind of saved uh, Bjorn's hide a little bit with uh-huh. Scott Grimm. Um, and probably saw this man as a uh, a young man of, of potential from the mm-hmm. right kind of family with good connections back in, in Norway. So yeah, I think it's it's plausible. How about that? Plausible? Mm-hmm. I'll take plausible. Okay. And so now Thorolf's getting married in a manner very similar to how his grandparents did mm-hmm. and how his nephew Thorstein will one day try to do again. Uh, 
So the whole thing does have echoes of this family's past and future. Right. So from a literary perspective, right, there's a real kind of theme developing here. But Mm -hmm. there is one significant difference this time around. Mm. What's that difference? Well, Kveldolf didn't have a little brother. Ah, yes. And if there's one thing we know about Ale, it's that he demands attention. (laughs) Part 19. You're enough trouble when you're sober. (laughs) All right. So shortly after Thorolf and his friends leave for the wedding, Thoris foreman, Olvir, prepares for a short journey by ship with a dozen men to collect rents from some of Thorir's lands. And Mm -hmm. Eil, who's recovering from his bout of poor health, asks if he can go along. All right, so right away, can we dispense with the idea that Eil's actually sick? Why, what do you mean? He's sick. He said so. He definitely can't go to school today. Yeah, school isn't the problem. He's sick, said with quotation marks, because he doesn't want to go to Thorolf's wedding. Because of who Thorolf is marrying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's not made explicit, but yeah, I absolutely agree. Eil is in love with his foster sister, Asgard. Yeah, this is where we really see the connection of Eil's story to the other warrior poet sagas, right? If we break down Cormac's saga or the saga of Gunlag Serpentung or any of the warrior poets, we find a plot built around a tale of love denied. In each of those sagas, a poet falls in love with a woman and is to some degree matched up with her, but circumstances intervene and a rival steps in to marry the woman. The poet leaves Iceland before the wedding takes place or fails to return home in time to stop the marriage and is bitter about the loss of his beloved. Right. Uh, you're making it somewhat vague, but that's the way it works for the warrior poet tradition. Mm-hmm. And Ail's story fits that pattern pretty well, more or less. He's paired up with the woman he loves, in this case his foster sibling. But a circumstance, his brother's link to Asgard's father's family, leads to this rival, Thorolf himself, stepping in and marrying Asgard instead. You also mentioned travel away from Iceland, and Eil is already in Norway. Right, and now he's going to travel again because he doesn't want to be anywhere in the area when Thorolf and Asgard are married, which is understandable. We know controlling his temper isn't Eil's strong suit, and this is a tough situation for him. Yeah, traveling by ship is no small task for a sick man, though. He's very sick. <laughs> I don't know if you're messing with me at this point or what. Ale's not sick. He's <laughs> Well, he's lovesick. All right, he's lovesick. There you go. So in other words, when Olvir says that Ale can certainly come along on the trip, what he's taking along with him is a were-berserk with a broken heart, mm-hmm. a fraying temper, and a self-control problem. Yeah, and when you put it that way, I mean, it already was a bad idea. Now it's a terrible idea. Yes, it is. Ale at this point is a very bad thing looking for someone to happen to. Well, he certainly goes dressed for the occasion because he's got a sword, a halberd, and a buckler along with him just in case he gets a chance to happen to someone. Halberd again? (laughs) Yeah, we we had a question about that in our last episode. And yes, it probably is an anachronism Uh or it's a reference to some other sort of pole arm. We're going to continue using Bernard Scudder's translation, though, and he uses the word halberd uh, as the translation of Kessia. Um, So we're going to stick to that term, I guess. Good enough. So Olver is off to collect rents, and he's got a ticking ale bomb along for the trip. And after a day of work, they stop off for the evening at the island of Atlui, where there's a farm belonging to Eric Bloodaxe, which is being run by a caretaker, a man named Atlui Bard. Now, they've had a hard day with rough seas, so Bard puts this crew up in an outbuilding with a fire to dry their clothes. Then he brings them bread, butter, 
a bowl of milk curds, and then some whey to drink. It's not bad. I mean, it's not meat and beer, but it's certainly not too shabby, I guess. A Thorgear butter ring would certainly be very happy with this one. <laughs> Good old Thorgear butter ring. Uh, well, Bard apologizes for not having ale ready for them, but he says there's none available at the moment. And he then invites them to sleep for the night in the outbuilding. So far, this isn't the most exciting adventure story. Some bread, some butter, a nice milk drink, and a warm bed for the night. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm not as young as I once was, John, and a quiet night in definitely has its appeals these days. But there's <laughs> a certain something missing from this tale. And yeah, I, does it does it help if I tell you that Bard is lying? Well, I've read this before, but sure, go ahead. It's a, it's a contrivance, Andy. Can you just go along with me on this? Okay. The scoundrel lying. Thank you. Thank you. Heavens See, it turns out that Bard's stuck Olvir and Ale's crew in the outbuilding because he's got the main house all set up for a big party that night. Eric Bloodaxe and Gunild are coming to visit Atloy. Well, that actually does explain Bard being a little cheap with his unexpected guests. Now, I don't know how many times we've seen these moments of hosting kings, but it's always a big deal. Not everyone can throw a party for 800 people without breaking a sweat like Ail's Uncle <laughs> Thoroff used to do. But it's always going to be an expensive proposition to host a king's retinue. We're still going to have to dock Bard a few points, though, because he's a bad host. And there's a lot of yeah, uh, but th- gift this is, culture this and is, guest culture in this culture. Yeah, but this night's a big deal for another reason. I mean, Bard's throwing the bash as part of a ceremony. He's making a sacrifice to the Disir. So this <laughs> is a big deal. I, I think, wait, isn't this, this is the first time we've seen one of these in the sagas? I think so, yeah. So what we're talking about here is a, a disablo, a ritual sacrifice to the Disir. Right. Now, the Disir are spirits, sometimes treated as lesser gods, sometimes more like guardian spirits. Uh, there are quite a few references to them in poetry, more so than in the sagas. Uh, for example, Andy, way back when we talked about Krakomal, the death poem of Ragnar Lothbrok, there's a reference to the Disir in there. It's one of the things we skipped for time. Yeah, Ragnar says something about the Disir escorting him to Valhalla. Exactly, yeah. That's uh, that's one of the ways the Disir show up in poetry. They're associated with calling the souls of the slain to the realm of the gods. That's why some scholars think of them as being Valkyrie-like, or even that it's another name for Valkyries. Uh, Britt Marie Nostrum, who's written about this, thinks that Valkyrie, which means chooser of the slain, is really just a kenning for the Disir. But things are a little more complex than that, aren't they? I mean, the Disir are also associated with the Norns. As the Norse fates, and mm-hmm. more broadly, they sometimes appear as household or family spirits, something more like the um, the fulgur, shades that are connected to a person's fate. Shades makes it sound so fancy. Well, I'm a fancy lad. Well, you are that. Uh, well, frustratingly, we can't really make a decision about who or what Bard and the royal couple have in mind, because we don't get a full description of what's happening or why. And we don't get anything, just this yeah. reference to the sacrifice to the Desir, uh, mm-hmm. which really means that we've been off down the rabbit hole again, not talking about what's in the actual saga. Well, it's context for the gathering. <laughs> and we will meet the Disir again uh, in Killer Gloom Saga, so we haven't seen the last of them. Looking forward to it. So after the ceremony, or whatever it is they are doing, everyone is enjoying the party. But Eric quickly notices that Bard is distracted and occasionally getting up to go out to this other building on the outskirts of the property. And as we know, Norwegian kings in this saga don't like it when they're not the center of attention. Right. Now, in that respect, at least... Eric is very much his father's son. Yeah, so Eric learns from another guest about the presence of Olvir's company. And since they represent Earl Thorir, Eric has them all invited in. Eil and Olvir sit together opposite the king and the queen in significant spots. 
Yeah, this is an odd spot for them. Yeah, it really is. It, it's a compliment to Earl Thorir, I suppose. But it's also possible that Eric intends to have a little fun with these guys. Well, sure. And we should say at this point, there's no indication that Eric knows who Ale is. Mm-hmm. Right? They've never actually met. And it's not like Ale looks much like his brother. No, no, no. He's very much like the Danny DeVito to Thorolf's Schwarzenegger. <laughs> <laughs> if Danny DeVito were huge and muscular. Right. <laughs> So he's essentially a precise mixture of DeVito and Schwarzenegger. Holy crap. I think we just cracked the ale code there. <laughs> he's the he's the genetic logical conclusion of the movie Twins. Someone call <laughs> Ivan Reitman. It's sequel time. Uh, <laughs> all right. Uh, until the Hollywood bunny starts rolling in, uh, we have a decent blot party to get back to. So this is a feasting occasion, and there's plenty of ale to be drunk. Now, wait a second. Bard specifically told Ale and Olvir after he gave them whey to drink. John, have you ever drank whey before? I have had um, stout with milk proteins added. Is that That's close? Not the same thing. <laughs> I used to have to uh, buy whey. They would in Russia. They would sell whey in like little bags, mm-hmm. um, and I could use. Oh, that you said a, they used it to speed up uh, fermentation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it's it's not tasty, in my opinion. No, um, but, uh, I've had uh, curds. Uh, on a number of occasions because my wife is from Wisconsin and it's considered a bit of a delicacy there. Is that right? It's yep. a Scandinavian uh, thing, huh? I am firmly of the belief that people in Wisconsin think it's a delicacy. <laughs> I feel slightly differently about the subject. I bet you do. You should ask next time they're, they're serving you, you should ask, uh, could I maybe wash it down with some, some whey <laughs> with your pinky out? And they'll say, no way. Ugh. Anyway, I know. I the, know. The, the, the thing I was trying to say before I distracted myself was <laughs> that uh, uh, Bard specifically told Ale and Over that there wasn't any ale. Well, Bard lied, Andy. Oh, that bad. There's a lot of ale. And with every toast, people are draining entire ale horns. Oh. And Over's crew, remember, they haven't had much of a dinner. Uh, and so as the drinking goes on, they're getting drunker and drunker. Mm-hmm. Uh, the saga says... As the night wore on, many of Olver's companions became incapacitated. Some of them vomited right there in the main room, <laughs> while others made it out the door. <laughs> but Bard insisted on serving them yet more drink. Now that's how you host a party. <laughs> uh, we've been to a few parties like that, haven't we, back in grad school, huh? Okay. Uh, modesty and uh, poor memory forbid me from commenting. So the best case scenario for Olvir's crew is to get outside and paint the doorstop. And that's right. the best case. Some of these guys are just horking where they sit. That's a charming expression. And, and meanwhile, Ailes started drinking his own horn and Olvir's too, since Olvir's an older guy and is about to pass out from the booze. Yep. <laughs> Bard sees this and starts refilling Ailes' horn again, saying that he's clearly very thirsty. Oh, see, now, now this guy is just taunting the dynamite monkey. Uh, or what did we call him last night? The dynamite wear, the dynamite wear berserk, right? That's right. <laughs> yeah, the dynamite wear berserk is also dealing with a broken heart right now. So the ale's hitting him just right. And, and remember, Bard lied to him about the ale. And ale, ale, ale. <laughs> ale, ale? Ale, ale. We're not saying the same thing, actually, but we'll address that a little bit later. Um <laughs> So it's not really a matter of whether ale explodes. It's just a question of when. Yeah, I mean, he's definitely simmering at this point. Mm -hmm. Uh, When Bard refills his horn yet again, ale peers up at him and speaks a verse.
You told the troll woman's foe you were short a feast drink when appeasing the goddesses. You deceived us, despoiler of graves. You hid your plotting thoughts from men you did not know for sheer spite, bard. You played a bad trick on us. <laughs> I know ale, and that's not good. Yeah, it's not a bad verse, but it's a bit thin on metaphor and style. It's uh, it's menacing. It's a direct address to Bard, as opposed to a more usual third-person style. And there's a direct accusation of Bard's mm-hmm. dishonesty in here. He's not. He's not. Uh, he's not being terribly poetic in this delivery. No. Ale's definitely. Uh, registering a complaint with management about poor service here. Oh, nicely put. Uh, and Bard reacts by telling him to stop being nasty and get on with his drinking. Which is fair, to be honest with you. <laughs> <laughs> it's an unfortunate circumstance that he's found himself in. Yeah. But, uh, that's not all he does, though. Bard sneaks over to Queen Gunhild to warn her that Ale will bring shame on the entire gathering with his claims of not being served enough to drink. We're sure Bard isn't just flop-sweating. I mean, he just had Ale Scuttler Grimson stare into his eyes and growl poetry at him. I think it's maybe a little of column A, a little of column B, but Gunhild isn't sweating at all. She just upends a vial of poison into the next horn that's prepared for Ale. <laughs> just just happens to have a vial of poison about her person. What a woman, right? While, while at a feast. Yeah. Andy, this this is an interesting woman. Uh, yeah, she doesn't cut corners, does she? No. She's uh, Gunhild, mother of kings. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, now she's Gunhild Borgia. Uh, Bard brings the horn to Ale, but Ale's not a complete idiot. He's sitting right across from the king and queen. He just watched Bard bring the horn to Gunhild, and then the two of them huddled over the horn and stirred it a bit. <laughs> right. This doesn't require Sherlock Holmesian levels of a deduction here. No, uh, but it's still an awkward situation for Ale. Right? I mean, he's a guest in the presence of the king and queen. It's not like he can just accuse Gunild of trying to poison him. She did just try to poison him, though. I know. But this is Ale we're talking about. He can do whatever he wants. Yeah, but he doesn't, though. We're still getting to know young Ale at this point in our story, and he's full of surprises. Instead of accusing her, he pricks his hand with a knife, carves runes on the horn, and smears them with his blood. He then speaks a verse to invoke the power of the runes, and the horn explodes into shards, spraying ale over the, all over the floor. So ale knows runic magic. See, yep. This is a new development. We've got a, a, a sorceress queen and a, a runic wizard. Mm-hmm. It turns out Mr. S- Mr. Scott LeGrimson is an educated man. Mm-hmm. Now Gunhild really hates him. Is that... What is that? Is that Tombstone you're bringing up? <laughs> Are we doing Tombstone here? Well, I was until you called me out on it. He looks at it and he says, I'm your Huckleberry. I'm your Huckleberry. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, it seems Ale picked up knowledge of runic magics somewhere along the way. Wow. And we almost certainly know where he learned this sort of thing, don't we? Oh, we do. I, I, we do. We, we do. do. Yes, we do. Of course we do. Back in our last episode, we briefly met Ale's ill-fated foster mother, Thorgerd Brack. Do you remember her? Mm-hmm. She yes, of the I know where you're stone. going with this. Yep. Here's the description of Thorgird from that chapter. She was an imposing woman, as strong as a man and well-versed in the magic arts. Ah, uh, now here's Ale blowing up poison horns with his mind. That's right. Well, 
I mean, well, with his mind and some blood-smeared runes. Right, right, okay. So, Ale learned his runes well. Thank you, Thorgerd. Yeah, but now the jig is up. Ale just burst Gunild's poison cocktail right in front of her. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's time to beat a hasty retreat. And I don't think this would be a problem, except well, they're, that... they're going to have I'm a gonna... hard time making a graceful exit, given that they're both drunk. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it slows things down a bit. Uh, is only half-conscious, so... Ale has to sort of drag walk him toward the exit. But Bard, who's not carrying an inebriated foreman, is quicker and intercepts them <laughs> at the doorway to try to shove one more ale horn for the road at Olvir. But Ale grabs <laughs> it instead and throws it to the floor. I'm feeling drunk, and the ale has left Olvir pale in the gills. I let the spray of ox spears foam over my beard. Your wits have gone, too, inviter of showers onto shields. Now the reign of the High God starts pouring on you. And then he whips his sword out of his cloak and plows it right through Bard's stomach. Oof. And Olvir... That's too much. I mean, Olvir's barely been holding it together. He just immediately loses control. He falls to the ground, vomiting all over the place as he drops. That's the part I... It's a great image. (laughs) Ale runs out of the house, leaving both men lying in their respective bodily fluid puddles. Understandably, there's a lot of confusion in the next few moments. (laughs) Eric and Gunild are shouting. Everyone's rushing for their weapons. Torches are being lit, but no one can find Ale. Right, so Ale has escaped into the night... Well, everyone else is freaking out about the killing of Bard. Right. Ale knows that he needs to make an escape from Atloy. And since Atloy is an island, that means getting some kind of ship. But all mm-hmm. night long, every time Ale tries to steal a ship, there are too many men nearby and on guard. And so he has to run away again. Right. Now, Eric and Gunhild know Atloy is an island, in other words. <laughs> so mm-hmm. they've got lots of guards on the ships to make sure that Ale can't escape. But there's more than one way to skin a Catloy. Ale uh, knows how to swim. Skin a catloy. What? Nothing, nothing. Just hope you're proud of yourself. I am a little, yeah. Mm. You're right, though. As soon as the, it's light out, Ale spots a smaller island out to sea. So he packs his helmet and sword and his spear point into a bag, dives into the water, and swims out to the little island, which is called Saudoy. Uh, without, and, and nobody spots him along the way. Mm-hmm. Then he waits while Eric's men search all over Atloy the next day. Right. But Eric's really angry now, and he's slightly more persistent than Ale was expecting. He sends ships out to the nearby islands to search them as well, and a small skiff with 12 men lands on Saudoy. See, 12 is a lot of men for this, this job to search a small island, mm-hmm. even for Ale. Uh, fortunately, the Saudoy away team isn't the brightest set of Christmas lights. They immediately <laughs> split up into four teams of three, with one of the teams left to guard the boat while the other search the island. Yeah, I'd say three men is a lot more Ale's speed. Well, that's what he's thinking, too. And as soon as the others are out of earshot, Ale charges the three remaining men, catches them off guard, and chops one of them down with a single strike. The other two split up, with one trying to run after the other nine men on the island. Ale chases him down and chops off his leg. Ouch. The problem is that while he's doing that, the third man jumps into the boat and pushes out to sea. But he only manages to get a few feet from shore... Before Ale grabs the boat, hauls it backward onto the beach, and jumps in with him. 
that's a scary moment. I actually feel kind of sorry for this guy. I mean, we're into oh, horror movie territory now. Oh, yes, we are. Ailes clearly in overdrive by this point and getting pulled backward toward a desperate berserker. It's like something from a horror film for real. Sure enough, it's not long before Ale kills him too and then takes the boat out to sea. Yeah, the, the mental image I have is that uh, the first Avengers movie, uh, when the Hulk attacks a plane uh-huh. uh, and the pilot attempts to eject, but the Hulk catches the ejection seat in midair. It's that moment of, I'm safe, oh shit. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, so meanwhile, back on Atloy, Olver and his men were left drunk and unconscious. It takes them until the next day to recover. But when they're past the worst of their hangovers, they're allowed to go home. I have to say, Eric and Gunhild are being surprisingly reasonable here. What do you mean? Well, I mean, Olvir did bring Ale to the celebration, and he's kind of responsible for him because of that. And mm-hmm. Ale killed the host. It's poor <laughs> manners at the very least. Eric's, right? Eric's father, yeah. Harold Fairhair, would almost certainly not send the rest of the group on their way without a scratch. Well, I, they are representatives of Eric's loyal and powerful friend and foster father, Earl Thorer. Even a king has to consider that sort of thing. I know, but still, for a guy named Bloodaxe, <laughs> Eric is coming <laughs> across as pretty fair-minded. And we're going to have to keep an eye on this king and his queen. Well, for now, Ulver and his men are happy enough to get away from Eric. They sail back to Thorer's farm, where Thorolf, Thorer, and Arambjorn have returned from Thorolf's wedding. No one knows where Eil is, and a day and night goes by while Thorolf worries. But the next day, Eil comes paddling around the headland, having been at sea in his little boat, rowing for a day and a half without stopping to reach the safety of Thorer's land. What I like about this is that Thorolf is probably equal parts furious at Eil and relieved he's still alive. But he sticks with the old rule that Icelanders don't show emotions in front of Norwegians. He mm-hmm. just asks whether anything of note happened on Ail's travels. Hey, he's being casual. Super cash. Hey, little brother, how was the trip? Right, and of course, Ail has a verse ready. He's had time to think of one on the boat. Great <laughs> <laughs> mm, in my deeds, I slipped away from the realm of the Lord of Norway and Gunhild. I do not boast too much. I sent three servants of that tree of the Valkyrie to the other world to stay in Hell's High Hall. Ail's friend Aaron Bjorn is pleased with all of this and says to his father that it's his job to make peace with the king. Yeah, presumably his logic here is that Ail was on a rent collection mission for Thorer when all this happened. I mean, I suppose so. Although it does seem like a bit of a stretch to me to make this Thorir's problem just because he's friends with the king. <laughs> uh, and, and Thorir agrees with me, by the way. He says, You, Ale, have inherited your family's gift for caring too little about incurring the king's wrath. And that will be a great burden to bear. Well, he's not wrong, you know. Well, no. But on this occasion, he is willing to talk to Eric on Ale's behalf. Again, he's very Olvir Humpish in this, mm-hmm. uh, in this section. And amazingly, he does manage to arrange a financial settlement and compensation for Bard and the dead warriors on Saudor. But Eric is furious about Ale escaping from him, and he warns Thorir not to let Ale stay in his realm for too long. Yeah, but he does accept the settlement. But again, we are talking about Eric's foster father in Thorir, right? So there's a there's a claim there on Eric that most men couldn't make. Quite right. But even with that in mind, Eric is turning out to be a very different figure from his father. Yes, and that's where we're going to leave Ale for now. A free man, 
but one who's just taken up the family mantle as a thorn in the side of Norwegian kings. Well, hang on. Since we're wrapping up, I just want to talk about one more thing before Well, this we... this episode isn't long enough for you? You don't want to... Well, I mean, this may not be the time for it, but I couldn't help but notice that Ale's poetry is improving. That's what you're focusing on right now. I approve. Go ahead. Well, yeah. I mean, it's, uh, you know, these, as he drinks, his poetry gets it's better. true. He's starting to get more <laughs> intricate in his constructions, for one thing. Uh, our translator, Bernard Scudder, does a great job of approximating the form of the verses in this part of the story. So I just want to call attention to it, especially um, when you get to the overlapping meanings of the words. So if we go back for a second to that verse Ale made right before killing Bard. Uh, I already read this out loud once. Do you want to take it? Oh, all right. Okay, but I'm not doing the voice. We're just going to go for clarity here. <laughs> all right. So Scudder renders this as, I'm feeling drunk and the ale has left over pale in the gills. Mm-hmm. I let the spray of ox spears foam over my beard. Your wits have gone too, inviter of showers onto shields. Now the rain of the high god starts pouring upon you. All right. So there's this linking idea across the lines of the flow of liquid. Mm-hmm. Right. In lines three to eight, we get the sequence spray, foam, shower, rain, pouring. Yes. And the first line connects those to drinking ale. Right. Now in Old Norse... This verse has an echoing set of vowel sounds in addition to the semantic links from one line to the next. Uh, Gabriel Hazeldine writes about this as the first example of this type of composition, which is called dunent in Ale Saga. Uh, he writes, The dunent creates a picture of showering mead, blood, and vomit as one line pours into another. Well, that's <laughs> a very good point, but kind of gross. Isn't it? <laughs> uh, and William Sayers writes about this verse as an example of Ophiost kenning, uh, which relies on a level of wordplay beyond the usual. Yeah, kennings are always about wordplay. Yes. So just to remind people, kennings are metaphors that use clever substitutions. Mm -hmm. uh, so the kenning whale road, which appears in Old Norse and Old English, uh, whale road means ocean or sea. It is the road upon which a whale yep. traverses. Right. But an Ophiost verse is more complex and includes a further level built on a double meaning. Uh, Gudrun Nordahl's definition, I think, is really helpful. To compose Ophiost means to make a kind of pun, where the wordplay involves an initial substitution of homonyms or homophones, and a replacement of the homophone, homonym by a synonym follows. Uh, so a homophone, for example, uh, actually whale road works as an example for this. Whale road means sea, but both whale and road have homophones in English. Okay. Right. So the indication whale road in an Ophiost poem would then rely on a listener working out that the actual reference was to a whale road, W-A-I-L. So a road of sorrows or tears. So a veil of tears, right? Oh, very nice. Yes, mm. yes. Uh, so the Norse puns are there, uh, but in English, the wordplay is a pretty good replacement. Uh, so all that comes together in this verse. Right? Mm. So uh, wordplay that is built on puns, that is built on homonyms, that is built on synonyms, that is constructed using vowel sounds that link the entire poem together. That's the level of game Ale is playing in this poem. Yeah, and it's very difficult to translate. So this is a poem yeah. that I shared on social media and then asked people to uh, share other versions of it. And there's mm -hmm. many different translations of it. Um, this is a, a, a quite good one. One of our listeners shared with me uh, one of the Russian versions, which is also quite good, but uh, can't really share it or you know, help anybody <laughs> else with it. But it, it works really, really nicely. 
Um, mm. But this device that you're talking about, it's called Ofliost, uh, and that means overly clear, uh, which is hilarious because it's obviously <laughs> sarcastic. Yeah, I think it is, yeah. Um, and the poem has those linking sounds, right, as well. Yeah. So it's there's so much going on in there. So, okay, I just wanted to point out that in the middle of all this chaos, Ale is laying down some pretty masterful poetry. Mm-hmm. Uh, now we can wrap it up. That was great. I mean, it's always fun when we can unpack some of the nuances of these texts. And I'm, I'm currently working in uh, in my kind of introduction to literary studies class with students on poetry and just the intricacies of poetry and the limits mm-hmm. that it places on the person, the kind of creativity you have to have to produce a poem within these forms. Uh, yep. Really fantastic stuff. Yep. Uh, all right. So at this point, we usually dip a cautious hand into our Saga Thing listener mailbag to read a few questions and comments. What do we have this time, Andy? Well, the first thing is a comment from Andrew O'Brien, or more like a meme, really. A a meme? Yes, it's a, a Drake meme, to be exact. Okay, I'm assuming this is something to do with a male waterfowl somehow, but go ahead. <laughs> You're so clever. I hope you don't mean that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but yeah I of, course I, I, of course I didn't, Andy. Go honestly, on. I really don't know. <laughs> um, so Andrew seems to be calling into question the name of this part of the podcast. Mm-hmm. He recommends changing it to the audience rune sack. The audience rune sack. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I'm not sure I like the audience part of that. I'm, I'm, not, I'm, yeah, I'm, not sure I'm into the rune sack, though. One of our listeners also suggested the rune kefli corner, which admittedly is kind of cute. It rolls off the tongue. Sure. Um, I like it. I think I like rune sack better. Uh, how about listener rune sack? Listener rune sack. It's a nice combination of what we've been doing with uh, something uh-huh. more appropriate. It, that works for me. The listener rune sack it is, at least for now, until something better comes up. Right. So uh, let <laughs> Just me rename uh, it every time. Let me. Yeah, we should. Right. Let me open up the uh, the old rune sack here and see what we've got. Oh boy, John! Look at this. Our listeners. <laughs> that was very convincing, by the way. Carving up a storm. I I really appreciate the way your foley work there too. It really <laughs> sounded like you were opening up a bag. Yes. <laughs> well, if the whole professor thing doesn't work out for you, Andy, you're going to want to stay away from foley work or hosting children's shows. Okay. Well, that was never going to be an option, so don't worry. All right. <laughs> so our first question comes from Ashley Fisher, who works at the mm-hmm. uh, Jorvik Viking Center. She sent this via email. Oh, hi, Ashley. This one's for you specifically. Hey, John. I've recently come across your glorious podcast, and in the Quarter Court episode, you mentioned an interest in disability studies. I'm just going to interrupt you to point out, Andy, my podcast, which you're welcome to continue being a part of. (laughs) Hmm. I didn't think about that. (laughs) Never mind. Ashley's question doesn't get to be answered. Let's move (laughs) on. (laughs) No, she says, my PhD research is into disability studies as well, and I was curious about any publications you've produced. I've done a lot of research into high medieval interpretations of disability, and I'm eager to expand my knowledge. Well, great. Uh, Well, first of all, Ashley, thanks for listening to the podcast. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm assuming that you're interested in sort of focusing on just the medieval disability, uh, and I can only offer the Northern European view. Uh, Since you work at the Jorvik Center, I'm assuming that's of interest to you as well. I can put a list of my disability study stuff up on the website, which includes some conference papers that haven't been turned into anything publishable yet. Uh, but in terms of published stuff on disability, uh, I have an essay called Difference in Disability on the Logic of Naming in the Icelandic Sagas, uh, which was in a collection called Disability in the Middle Ages, edited by Josh Eiler a few years back. Um, I'm also co-editing a collection on medieval disability with Keisha Tracy. And for that book, I've contributed an essay 
titled by any other name, Nicknames and Difference in the Icelandic Sagas. Uh, more broadly, I've also got an essay in a collection for the Bloomsbury Cultural History Disability Series, edited by Jonathan Sue, Tori Pierman, and Joshua Eiler. Uh, that essay is called Atypical Bodies Seeking After Meaning in Physical Difference, and it draws pretty heavily on the sagas, and Ale is actually mentioned quite prominently in that article, uh, but it's written into a larger medieval context that also deals with things like cleft palates, intersex figures, and other non-normate bodies. Uh, so that's that's a little inside baseball for, for me and Ashley. Uh, more <laughs> on the subject, though, drop us another line. Let us know what you're working on. Um, I, we're both big fans of the Jorvik site. Uh, I'm a big fan of disability studies. I'd love to hear where your focus lies. Absolutely. And say hi to all our friends over there at the Jorvik Center. Yes. All right. All right. So, uh, John, our next one comes from uh, Bertling Handmade on Instagram. All right. Uh, make, does really nice leather work. Um, so check mm-hmm. it out on Instagram if you can. Per- Bertling Handmade. Um, somewhat oh, okay. off top- handmade. I was thinking of uh, the the novel, yeah, like a handmaiden. No, no, hand <laughs> handmaid's tale. Yeah, yeah. Bertling handmade. Got it. Got it. Carry gotcha. on. So the question is this: somewhat off topic, but when are you guys going to do the Tatooine Dola saga? <laughs> yes, we're we're very familiar with Tatooine Dola saga. <laughs> yes, we are. I, I actually, I believe. Uh, we get sent a link to the Tatooine Dollar Saga once a month. Yeah, uh, and as much as we'd love to tackle that monster, and it is a it is a great read, um, we'll have to stick to the traditional forty family sagas for now. Mm-hmm. But uh, hey, keep an eye out. I mean, on on May the fourth, anything can happen. I hope not. <laughs> L- leave them hope, Andy. Leave yeah. them hope. Uh, all right, you want to do a quick one? Sure. All right. So uh, this is from Margaret Darrow Sandor. Uh, now, this is not a dumb question, Margaret, but she writes, dumb question. How did you arrive at your pronunciation of ale? See, that's that's a decent question. It's not a dumb yeah. question at all because uh, it's kind of confusing even to us, <laughs> right? So, uh, well, John there are, and I, There's more than one option, isn't there? There, there are, There's more than one option. So John and I have frequently said that we, we were trained in uh, Old Norse but not modern Icelandic, and we were never trained mm-hmm. to read things in modern Icelandic. Um, by our professor who, who taught us uh, Old Norse. Hi, Bob. Um, this is one of those rare occasions uh, where we have adopted uh, just from this is how it's always been pronounced in, in classes. Yeah. Um, this is how we've always heard it pronounced. Uh, ale. Uh, now, again, we're saying ale. Uh, there's kind of a Y sound in there. We're not saying the word ale like, uh, like beer. Uh, that's not right. what we're saying. Um, but the reason is because in modern Icelandic, when you have... A, a G um, that is placed between two vowels where the second vowel is an I, it takes on a Y sound. The G becomes mm-hmm. a Y sound. So it's A-Y-L. Um, that said, we are also not uh, pronouncing it properly according to modern Icelandic because Ale's name in Icelandic actually has two L's. And anytime you have right. two L's, like in Skalagrim, so that's pronounced Skatlagrim, which we occasionally struggle with and... Uh, <laughs> leave in the podcast when we when we screw up. Um, Ale's name is E G I L L, so it should be Ail um, or some variation on that. Mm-hmm. Um, but we have anglicized the the L part um, for, right. for just clarity. Right. So it's uh, the rules of pronunciation of modern Icelandic that lead to the pronunciation of Ale. Um, that's why we do it. That's right. So uh, our next comment so our next uh the next rune stick that i pulled out john uh is from ingrid ringler <laughs> and, oh hi ingrid uh, 
this is a, a, a this is more of a comment than a question. Um, she says and she's a little bit behind on on her listening, although maybe we're taking That's long great. enough now that she's catching up. She says, I, I realize I'm about five months late to the party, but I just got to the lactation portion of the Flow of Monosaga episode. Oh, excellent. I happen to have the fortune of taking a medieval history class with Diane Elliott, whose specialty is medieval mm. sexuality. And she said that the relation between blood and milk goes back to original sin and the Virgin Mary. To wit, menstruation is a symbol of original sin, but the Virgin Mary was a perfect and sinless being, so she did not menstruate. Mm-hmm. I bet our listeners didn't expect to hear all that, right? Right. This is, we should have put a certain kind of warning on this, but I'm not sure what kind. However, she goes on, conservation of matter, where did the blood go? Mm-hmm. Well, it turns out that per medieval science, milk is just concentrated blood anyway, possibly also related to women not menstruating while lactating. That's oh, not, interesting. That's not very good science, in my opinion. Well, no, but it. <laughs> So observational science. Yeah. So she goes on. Mary was in a state of perpetual lactation, which is why you can find paintings of Mary squirting milk into the mouth of waiting knights. Hmm. Um, I love those paintings, by the way. Anytime they're fantastic. The, uh, yeah. Yeah. Anyone um, who's not familiar with them should really go and look this up. I absolutely. Mean, you know, obviously, do a Google search with care if you're at work. But um, <laughs> what you're looking for, yeah, is these images of Mary uh, feeding knights. Uh, with her milk. Yeah. And she's got great aim because there's usually a good bit of distance between them. Right. No, it's, it's an arc to it. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> good, good for her. So th- th- bring it to a conclusion here. She writes, there's possibly a similar path going on scientifically or theologically with Thorgils and Thorfinn. Perhaps mm. if you cut down past the surface of, of the blood there, you get to its source, which may be more nutritious milk. That's interesting. It suggests that the blood is concentrated deeper inside the body and thins as it gets closer to the skin. I guess so. I, it's an interesting idea. I haven't I haven't read anything about this one way or the other, but I like that as an idea that mm-hmm. that um, you know if you think about sort of the the medicines of the humors, right, which right. is kind of you know a very kind of medieval way of thinking about the body. The idea that um, the blood closer to the surface would be thinner. Uh, maybe even less wholesome than uh, the deeper down concentrated blood uh, that presumably at some point sort of transmutates or, mm-hmm. tra- or uh, changes its essence and becomes milk. It's an interesting idea. I, I don't know enough about it to be able to say yes or no, but I like the idea. I like it as well. So so last, we have a question from Kay Dadamio. I think that's right. Dadamio. Kadadamio? Kid- I don't think it's pronounced Kadadamio. It's it is now. Kadadamio. Yeah, we've got a very serious question from mm-hmm. Kay Dadamio. Yep. Or Kadadamio, as you like to call her. Which one is more fun to say? Bandamanasaga <laughs> or Kjalnasinga saga? Really? After that conversation, we have to ask which one is more fun to say? Yeah. Uh, and and, the, and why would you fun throw... to say the most fun to say is Kadadamio? Kadadamio. <laughs> Kadadamio. Kadadamio. <laughs> I don't think it's Kanata Mio. I don't know where you're getting that. <laughs> it is now. It's more fun to say that way. I would well, say in any case, the answer is obviously Bandamana. It is. I you know, you want to throw in Flow of Monosaga. Flow of Monosaga. Monosaga. But then you read Flow of Monosaga and you're like, nope. No, um, it's something about the B and the D. Yeah, exactly. Monosaga. It just did uh, it's yeah. it's like it's like you go up the hill and then the roller coaster goes right back down. It's fantastic. <laughs> it's it's beautiful. Yeah. But you can't beat Bandamanasaga. Although I'm going to say that Kanata Mio is now my uh, my close second. <laughs> All right. I think that's going to have to do it. I'm I'm sealing the uh, the rune sack. We'll put it away for next time. 
<laughs> All right. Uh, well, we covered a lot of ground this time out. I mean, Ale's career is just getting started, but we've got okay. a lot done. Uh, and with the king and queen of Norway once again looking to avenge themselves and our protagonist's family, we'll have to see whether Ale's wanderings can keep him out of the royal grasp of Eric and safe from the magical tricks of Gunhild. Yes. For now, we thank you for listening. There will be a slight delay, as there always is at this time of year, before our next episode. <laughs> we are both at the end of the semester. We'll be fighting to stay on top of a teetering pile of grading, pending exams, yeah. and a right. conference. We're hopeful that the wait won't be too long. Uh, in a couple of weeks, Andy and I will be attending the annual Run-In of the Medievalists at the <laughs> International Congress on Medieval Studies in sunny Kalamazoo, Michigan. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll be doing that weird thing where we record while we're in the same room. It's unnerving. Is it my ankles? You don't like my ankles? Are you distracted <laughs> by the fact that you can see my fat ankles? No, and that's kind of an odd <laughs> thing to assume. I was talking about sharing a microphone. Oh, that. Well, we don't have to sit so close. You're, your ankles are fine. Thank uh, you. So anyway, we'll uh, we'll have that episode up in a few weeks, probably the middle of May. Yes. And in the meantime, if you enjoy our program, tell your friends, tell your family, tell everybody about it. We don't advertise the show, so word of mouth is really our best way of bringing new listeners into the fold. And if you'd like to be in touch, you can find us on all the usual social media platforms. Leave a comment on the WordPress site for the show, or join in the conversation on our Facebook page for Saga Theme Podcasts, or on Twitter where we are Saga Theme Pod, or through email addressed to sagathinkpodcast at gmail.com. Meanwhile, the shine still isn't off our spanking new Instagram page, which so far is mostly Andy posting his old vacation photos from last year's trip to Iceland. <laughs> it's a visual medium. Uh, what do you, what there you go. Do? Uh, but we've got plans for that page as well. Big plans. Devious plans. We... Devious plans? I assume so, yeah. Have you, well, can uh, I ask, can you, have you even opened that, that page yet? No idea how to access it, no. Exactly. That's what I thought. So what are your devious <laughs> plans then? Uh, well, in the meantime, if none of those work for you, you can also write us a note on a 3x5 index card and hide it in your local library between pages 308 and 309 of Oswald Spengler's The Decline of the West. And we'll get to it eventually. We promise. Yep. Yep. <laughs> All right, we'll be back soon. Until then, thanks for listening, everyone. Bye for now. Okay, good puppy. Go back to bed. You're a good boy. You're a good boy. Hi. Yes, you're a good boy. Wag, wag, wag.